Hey, hey guys, welcome to episode one of the first ever Cultural Podcast, where we're going to be interviewing Tim Grove and getting to know a little bit more about his practice, about his opinions, his stance on art and technology. I'm Sam. I'm one of the founders of Culture Vault. I head up the, the tech side of things there. And with us, we have the lovely Joan Westenberg, a very good friend of Culture Vault and contributor. We're here to talk all things tech, art on the podcast and with a bit of a focus on Web3. Yeah, 100%. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for the intro. Thanks for having me. And Tim, I'm really excited to be talking to you today. So we're going to be getting into a few things on the potty today. We're going to be talking about, obviously, your practice, your cultural connection, the work that you've been doing, how you balance commercial and artistic work, all that kind of stuff. So I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Cool. So just for everyone that will be listening, Tim, would you mind just giving a little bit of a brief intro on yourself, how you came into you know becoming an artist and your involvement with technology? Yeah, yeah, sure. So my name is Tim Grove. I am a designer and artist from Sydney, Australia. And I am also a design lead at an audio software company called Cradle. I've been, been doing design or some form of digital art for probably close to two decades now. Got into it when I was quite young. And I think it really started for me with computers. I had a uh, old DOS 386, 286, 386, and then a 486 when I was growing up and used old computers and didn't have Windows or anything like that. So I sort of became a little bit obsessed with them and how they worked and things that they could do and things that they couldn't do. And then, you know, as graphics started to come into it, it was uh, it was more and more interesting, you know, seeing Windows for the first time when I was young was pretty, uh, pretty cool. So I went, I had this sort of early obsession with computers and computer games and loved playing Sega Mega Drive and loved the Nintendo 64 and stuff like that. Around my teen years, I happened to come across, my dad showed me Photoshop and I used a very early version of Photoshop, which was really not very powerful. And we also at the time didn't really have a digital camera. So... I was stuck with this thing that you could, you know, like a slightly enhanced version of Microsoft Paint is how I used to think of Photoshop. <laughs> just like you could do like, oh, cool. Brushes have soft edges. Cool. Okay. All right. We've got some. It's a large cry on Photoshop AI, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah. From that. It's a long way from that. Yeah. Now, now it, it can paint on your behalf, which is pretty impressive. So yeah, there was sort of this period there where I was picking up Photoshop and I thought it was quite an interesting application. I didn't really understand too much about what I was doing, but. When I think about it, it really, a lot of this stuff for me started what is graphic design for me, but wasn't really quite clear early on. So for example, like I used to make websites on Yahoo GeoCities and I used to I eventually started modding games and I would later on make MySpace layouts and things like that. And Photoshop was a way that I could go and create these assets that I knew existed inside the game or existed inside, you know, some of the UIs on web pages, especially early internet. There was just a lot of that really like chromic glass buttons and animated buttons. And a lot of this like hover states were a big deal then. So there was a huge amount of that and really Photoshop and, and you know, graphics in general sort of became a bit of a necessity because I, I wanted to do things and I just found it fun. It's just another thing to fiddle with. And so, yeah, I did a lot of that and had various, up to school, had various different jobs, none of them related to design or art. 
I ended up during the time of doing these other jobs, I started working for bands and doing a lot of flyers and album covers and things like that, which I really enjoyed. My brother was in bands and, you know, a lot of my friends were in bands. So it was quite fun. And about age of 23, I, I got into magazines. I became an intern graphic designer at ACP magazines, which was later on Bauer magazines, Bauer media, and worked for them for seven or so years, I believe. I can't quite remember. And really, really learned graphic design there. Came in very green thinking that I knew what I was talking about and I absolutely didn't and got to school quite quickly, which was good. It was healthy for me. And I ended up leaving there at the end, doing less design and more creating digital products and sort of understanding like, you know, technology and seeing sort of through different disciplines and making a whole bunch of different things marry up together and seeing a bit of a bigger picture. And after that, I left, went freelance and as a graphic designer, but at the same time, I used some of my, some of my redundancy money that I got paid at the time to build a a workstation with a single graphics card in it. That was really not that powerful, but at the time, GPU rendering had become a big deal. And I was getting shoved in this direction by my friend, David Port, Beckerfeld, who you, you may know. Yeah. Yeah. He was just telling me all the time, like, yeah, you should get into 3D, you should get into 3D. And I was like, I think I like AI. Like, I think I, I like Adobe Illustrator, not, not AI, AI, you know, it's not AI. Yeah. And it's like, I like, I, I just like simple stuff. I like doing vectors and I like, you know, form and stuff like that. I was into logos at the time. And he said, you know, once you start playing with these tools, you really enjoy it. And I did, I really did enjoy it. And 3D started like within that year, 3D became pretty much 98% of my work. And it was, it was one of those things that was the right time, right place and, you know, right attitude towards the work and right for me too. I just fell, fell in love with the tool set and found it very refreshing after using Adobe tools for the, you know, best part of a decade. It was very different going to a different way of thinking in, in three dimensions. And not only that, the, the tool set, this new sort of like toy box to open and play with. So yeah, that's really the story. And it starts with old computers. <laughs> Funnily enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> really interesting. How how did you find that transition from 2D to 3D? Was it a big step up? Was it kind of like, whoa, what's going on here? I have to learn everything from scratch again. And and in terms of the 3D kind of software you're using, what was what was that? What was the one that you kind of first entered into the 3D space on? Yeah, for sure. So and at the time, Cinema 4D was just a big, it was a big deal. There was a lot of fuss about it. And a lot of people were saying, oh, you should learn how to use this. To answer the, the main part of that question super daunting like <laughs> i think for any anyone who's listening who's a graphic designer may have already swung at 3d or tried to get into 3d and found it really daunting really confusing i think i said that i picked up this workstation and i used it like used cinema 4d then seriously i did take it seriously at that point because i had left my job but i'd been using it for a couple of years on and off before that and it was really hard. It's really hard to find the drive to open the application. So, so many words I didn't know, so many tools, so many different modes. And the other thing is the application is much, much, much deeper. Like there are entire, like I've used it for a very long time now and I feel very good. Just finished teaching it at uni. And I can tell you, I probably only know about 10% of the application. And that gives me like, you know, enough to do work professionally in multiple different ways. So 
Yeah, it's one of those things that I think that it's a bit like a mountain that you are climbing and eventually you reach the summit and you see that there's many, many, many other big mountains beyond that, which I think feeling that many people are familiar with. But once I, once I had unlocked the system and the way of thinking, a lot of the other stuff came naturally that I don't think comes naturally to other 3D artists who start from 3D. So for example, composition, color theory, knowledge of photography is very useful in 3D because all of the cameras have focal lengths and apertures and most of them behave how cameras work in the real world. So, you know, knowing a little bit about photography and, and that sort of thing and framing and doing a little bit of, uh, done some music videos before then as well. So knowing, you know, rule of thirds and how to frame a shot and what color should be in the shot and stuff like that really started to just sort of supercharge the work. It was, it was a bit of a shortcut there for quality as long as I could work out how to use the application. So yeah, I mean, advice for anyone listening that's out there, I think designers actually make the perfect people to transition to 3D. The, the barrier to entry is high and I'd just say, just stick at it. You've got things like Blender now, YouTube, there are tutorials everywhere. You'll, you'll enjoy it once you work it out, once you crack it. I'm playing around in Blender a little bit at the moment and yeah, big, big learning curve, but it's exciting. It's fun. And yeah, what a, what a cool program as well. Super powerful. And the, the whole open source nature of it and how much reason there are within the community just to, you know, self-teach for an application like that. It's incredible. Very impressive. You've come into the space as a 2D artist and then you've yeah, progressed to 3D. Your practice has changed and evolved over time. I'd love to see some of those early outputs on Adobe Illustrator, what, what Tim was working with back then. Be cool to see some of those, dig them up from the archive. Uh, as your practices evolved and you've seen yourself evolve back then, you know, were you looking at more 2D artists and get, getting inspiration from them? And as your practices evolved, are you now looking at more 3D artists for inspiration? Who are kind of the artists that you're watching at the moment? Yeah, there's, there's probably a few moments in my in my life that I've had. So there's a, there's a book, I think I have it behind me somewhere. It doesn't help on a podcast, but there's a book called Shock of the New, which was a series on BBC, but it was about art, you know, the last hundred years of art in general. And my mom had this book on her shelf through my entire childhood. And I used to pull it off and open it up and look at things in there. And it introduced me to surrealism and, you know, Dali and Picasso and lots of different famous artists from the last hundred years that really sort of gave me this perspective of, oh, right. I used to like drawing and stuff. It's funny when I think back to it, I can't even trigger aside from someone like Ian Anderson and the designers Republic, like they were, they were a design studio from the UK that did all of the graphics for the wipeout series, the PlayStation one video games, like a futuristic racing video game. They made all of these graphics that essentially like pseudo advertisements. They were like drink brands that didn't exist. And I didn't, I don't think at that point I really knew what graphic that was called graphic design. And so I used to see these images around Reap magazines and it was all filled with graphic design, but I didn't quite know that's what it was called. And I didn't know any graphic designers, didn't have any graphic design friends or anything like that. So. There's this moment like while I was working in, in magazines where I went and saw an artist, Japanese artist, Ryoji Aikida, who is like a data artist. And we went to Carriage Works and my partner at the time, we sat down, they put earmuffs on us and we sat down and this thing had watched this crazy artistic performance that was just, just extremely abrasive, like extremely abrasive visually and 
and audibly as well. And it really changed my mind about what I thought I was allowed to do as an artist. It really made me think like there's, there was people that were in their seventies at the end, standing up, up, like giving a standing ovation to what was, I considered to be one of the most abrasive abstract digital art pieces I think I'd seen at that time. And to see a, a room filled with people that had paid money to go and see it was really like had a big impact on me. Around that time as well, I started to discover through Instagram, I, I think, what's called post-graffiti. I don't even actually know if this is like the real term. Like, I don't know anyone who does it. I've heard neo-graffiti, I've heard post-graffiti, but these are artists that people would be very familiar with now. Demsky, Felipe Pantone, Smythe One, essentially graffiti artists that like merge graphic design, graffiti artists, Demsky, towel covering my DJ decks behind me, but I just have it around all the time, you know, and it, when you see it, you're like, oh, you just bite their work, which is somewhat true. Like they've been inspirational to me for the, for, for quite a long time now. So yeah, I think artists that I find inspiring is really like this mix of traditional artists, not very many digital artists, right? Giacchino is a digital artist, but it's not really like it's really starts as art and it, you know, way before the internet and stuff like that, or, you know, not before the internet, but before social media. So yeah, I think there's that. And then there's, there's definitely digital artists like that I look at now that I consider my peers as well. that are amazing. Frederick Heyman, Adira Putra, Kitsavi, Kushlet or Kushagra, Nick Hamilton from Melbourne. I mean, the, I, I looked through before this call to try and find some names and I was just I was like, there's too many names here. <laughs> I think there's so much good work around and it's so sort of, it's it's connected through the internet. Definitely something has happened with NFTs as well. It's a little culture shift going on there, which is really cool. So yeah, it's it's a mix. It's a big mix. You've touched on something a few times now that I'd really like to drill into sort of from a almost philosophical angle. I'd love to hear how you think about the difference between art and design and your practice as an artist versus a designer yeah yeah it's definitely it's definitely a little dilemma that i feel like i have this i suppose some sort of turbulent relationship between those two sides of my of my brain as a designer i'm looking to solve problems and there's the and and I think there's a there's a good example I just used for for my uni students that was a great designer and, and, and I consider an artist named Bao Tin Yuan. And Bao is seems to reverse brief himself. So he will create a brief that will be like, I need to create brands that look like they are permanent markers. He'll go and create a bunch of permanent marker brands that are pseudo brands, a bit like this, what I just said with Ian Anderson and Ben Design, yeah. a bit like Wipeout. It creates all of these pseudo like sort of identities in, in Illustrator, but then we'll go and model all of the pens themselves and apply it all in 3D. So these 3D renders are basically just a pile of pens, but there's this like nice sort of like dance between like reality and creativity that is required there. And I suppose I do a fair bit of that myself. It's not often that I do the the train of thought, furious creation type thing. I'm usually doing some sort of research. There's ideas. My notes, horrible. I'm sure iCloud are looking at my notes and going, how are we going to organize this database of Tim's notes? Because it's just getting ridiculous now. And so, yeah, I, I, I 
constantly collecting information and then working out how am I going to distill it into something that I'm going to make. And something that I feel like as I'm getting older, very keen to try and develop a body of work. I think digital art right now is one of those things that moves very, very fast. You've got to make something one day. And if that works, cool, it worked on social media. You've got to make another thing that looks like it. And I think a lot of artists fall into that trap. I want to think about it the way that painters think about it, where they're like, I actually need to go away and develop a technique or think about this new way of doing things or think about all of this information and turn it into something with meaning across multiple pieces. Social media can shape and change an artist's aesthetic in very clear ways, you know, like the algorithm. It, <laughs> it wants certain things and there's that pressure that I guess you must see in your students as well. There's that mm -hmm. pressure to create something to go viral, you know? Absolutely. And I, I actually tell people often that going viral is a curse. I've seen it happen to many people that if you have one post that goes viral, one, it has such a cultural impact on your mindset about what you think is good and what you should make. But not only that, it sets an expectation that you are constantly going to try and chase. And it's when we talk about followers on Instagram, for example, we constantly talk about follow accounts as this thing that's like really important. And there's this word that I don't, I'm sure is very common between marketing people that I consider to be follower value. And the way that I've always said it is you want a thousand art directors following you, not 10,000 fans, right? Because if a thousand art directors follow you, uh, you're going to get work. You're going to be in involved in really good projects because every time you post, you only get a small percentage of the, the feed. That's the reach. And if it's if your reach is filled with people who just love your work because they saw it on their explore page, that's fine, but it's not going to turn into money for you. And so that's why occasionally you'll see accounts that have hundreds of thousands of genuine followers, none of them bought, um, and artists complaining that they don't have any work, which I think is like a really, that's the downside of the social media algorithm and the downside of like digital art in that way. Really got to hopefully, hopefully, Social media is going through some sort of transformation right now where we're going to get something a little bit different, hopefully, uh, that works better for everyone, everyone who wants to use the internet, you know? <laughs> That's the dream. That's the dream. That's the dream, yeah. Super, super interesting, Tim, hearing your opinion on this and kind of leads me to my next point What I want to go into is your creative practice and your own practice from start to finish, talking about, you know, this idea of avoiding the trap of social media. So how do you stay true to, to your own practice and wash out all the noise or the pressures of trying to make something like this, try to make something like this, this is trending? What's your process there and how do you how do you stay true to it? Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll be completely honest. If you look through my Instagram feed and look through all of my work, you'll see me following trends all the time. Like I'm not immune to the pressure of it. And there's definitely things that I've done in the past where I've been like, oh, that worked. I'm going to do that again. And for sure, like I think, I think the some of the best advice that I can give is that I've found is just when you know, being honest with yourself is a, is a really good trait and working out how to, how to make the most of your own work before it reaches social media. What do you, what do you, when you ask yourself, as people say in your heart of hearts, what do you actually want to do? If people really stop and think about it and, and you really ask them that question, you maybe have to ask it three times. Usually you get down to it. They want something that that's not what they said first. The first thing that they say is usually like, oh yeah, you know, I'd love to have heaps of followers and I'd love to make stuff that looks like that. And it's like, you've got all of this, your own ingenuity to bring to that. And I think that's the real thing. It's like trying to, 
trying to get down to that and trying to get to that part first and the social media is something that sort of happens on the side after it. I heard another friend of mine once say, it's a scrapbook. You know, like I don't, I don't delete any of my posts. If you go back through my Instagram, you'll see me do really bad work. <laughs> like you'll see, you'll see cringe stuff. You keep going down, you'll see funny cringe stuff. And I keep it there. Like I feel like when, when I've told other younger artists to go look at my profile, go look, you can see my journey. It looks like a gradient of quality. And now it feels patchy to me, which I think that's always going to be future self with hindsight, looking back at my old work. But uh, yeah, just don't, don't treat it like this, this curated thing that we used to do. That's dead. That's dead. And it, it needs to go away. It's not healthy. And I don't think it, I don't think it works. I think you should be using, especially something like a platform like Instagram. It's your old posts are dead the day after. It doesn't matter anymore unless someone goes to your profile. And I just don't think people are diving into profiles and looking through 20 posts. No one's really doing that. So just, uh, the data says people aren't like no one's clicking through anymore. And they said a specific call to action. The data says people just scroll. They just scroll the feed, the feed and the yeah. explore page. And it's just like, you know, it's very, very simple in that way. So yeah, I think in that way, just treat it like a scrapbook. Make what you like today and make how you feel today. Sometimes you'll feel like depressed and you want to make something that's really bleak. Just going to make it. Like if people really go, oh, that's not my style. I always use the color pink or I use like, you know, pastels or whatever. It's just like, I don't know that everyone feels like pastels all the time. Maybe that's your creative output. But if you feel like making something that's completely different, Go do it. And I think that shows in my work. I've tried to do realism at times. I've done surrealism, done very graphic things, like, you know, just kept it kept it mixed. I think it's it's way more fun that way, way more interesting. How do you think then about maintaining an identity as an artist, like a recognizable identity people can follow? Do you have to have something consistent and cohesive, or can it be anything everywhere all at once as long as it's coming from your mind? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good question and it's something that I've sort of had battles with over the years. I actually think it's that it comes from me. I, I've become, the longer time goes on, I think the more and more it is how I interpret my inspiration and then how I impart that on the tools and my output that gives it my style. And while I think that various different styles can be diverse and you can see different sorts of output from people. Some are more narrow, some are more focused, some are easier to understand. Others are complex. And I mean, I think Henri Batiste is a fantastic example of this, right? This artist who's fantastic portrait painter, most famous work is paper cut out while he's lying in a hospital bed. So I think that it's like, we do fall into this trap that I think, especially digital artists, is somewhat informed by social media that it's like, for sure, style sells. Having a narrow, easy to understand body of work that looks cohesive and consistent, it's the most, it, it takes the, the least cognitive load to digest that information and is the least challenging. That is for sure. I just don't think it's authentic for me. The th I, I have too many things, too many interests, too many things I want to try, too many applications I want to learn and I think that my body of work probably represents a bit of that sort of chaos. And I see people struggle with it, especially illustrators. Illustrators are always trying to find their their lane. And I just think it's more about like, who are you? What's your experiences? And what have you done? And what do you want to do? Be honest about those things. And I think that it'll, it'll lead you home. Nice. Very nice. Very nicely put. 
I'm just thinking about some of your previous work on Culture Vault, recently sold, the three-way handshake and how, yes. you know, from first looking at it, I can see, you know, technologically, there's a lot of tech that's gone in to produce this. And I look at it and I have a response visually, firstly, to your work. But then secondly, upon reflection and going back and reading the description of your work, it's very heavily centered around technology itself as the subject matter. So yeah, I'd love to, you know, tell the audience a little bit more about the the three-way handshake and, you know, these ideas that you represent in your art. How do you balance that you're using technology in your practice to create those visual works, but also you're representing the technology that is the subject matter, which I find really, really interesting about your work. Yeah. I mean, for me, the internet was just a big deal. Like I didn't, I don't think it had, I don't think I realized how much of an impact it would have, you know, like I was amazed that I could message people on MSN and ICQ and, and talk to people through the internet. I thought that was really, really cool. But once peer-to-peer sharing came along and Napster and LimeWire, and for me, Kazaa was just a big, that was the one that we had at the time. And that, the concept of getting like music for free, just the concept of music for free, that's just like CDs at the time were $25 at the petrol station, you know, and you sort of like, I really want that real McCoy CD, but I do not have $25 and I only want one song off it. So, you know, like the, the option to sort of be able to just go, oh, I just want to hear that song that I heard on video hits this morning or whatever, and being able to download it was just all mind bending for me. And so again, the, the three-way handshake thing sort of comes from this obsession with early computation and early computing and the internet that I... As I've aged, I've grown more appreciation for these tiny pieces of infrastructure that live underneath all of the the UI and stuff that we build on top. We build all of these very, very high-level languages and and things to sort of communicate and, and solve problems. And there's a lot of stuff underneath it that goes on that I don't think many people have an appreciation for. And at the beginning, it's very, very simple. So yeah, three-way handshake was really just about like trying to, trying to, again, sort of going back to what you asked before, Jones, just like this design thinking, I wrote myself a brief that I was like, okay, cool. Let's go and look at like interesting things about the internet. I was looking through like the internet Wikipedia and cool. Let's look at like protocols and how things, how, how do we even like get information off a server and stuff and came along this three-way handshake sort of concept and how it works and knowing that basically that happens every time we access anything. I thought it was just really interesting and I, I get to think about it in this way. It's like, well, what do I want data to look like? Okay, I've got, a sim- I've got a simulator flow of information. Cool, maybe I'll do that like this. And I, that's where the art comes into. I really get to be abstract about how I might present those things that I'm reading, which in reality don't actually look like anything. <laughs> yeah. Copper, copper cables and a few little elec- a little bit of electricity and you know it doesn't look as cool as my artwork but you know I like to think about what what is it you know and I, you probably see a lot of movies do that sort of stuff and there's a lot of it in the matrix which is hugely inspirational to me a lot of it in swordfish any of those early sort of 90s late 90s early 2000s sort of like computer hacker movies there's a lot of this sort of zoom into this to the motherboard and see all of this stuff happening that it's not really happening but it's an excuse for the vfx team to get their hands dirty and it's probably where a lot of that sort of idea comes from yeah it's really cool to see how your work does try to illuminate and illustrate stuff that isn't safe 
especially in technology world. Like we, we all work in tech. It's there, but it's not. And yep. as you said, it's, you know, if you actually just looked at it, it's a bit of wire that's sparking, well, not even sparking, but sending these little things that you can't even see. And so how is that represented? And that's what I really love about your work and can see in, in a lot of your recent NFTs, really that, that, that concept coming through quite hard. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it definitely happens with constructing future too. The other other piece that I have on Culture Vault, like so really sort of like literal commentary on building the way that the future will look. You know, you've got this scenario now that appears in a lot of sci-fi movies where there's screens everywhere. You can see that we're at the edge of that happening now, which is really cool. That's like I love the idea that you're gonna see this screen where we're so used to seeing a bunch of buildings that are being built and scaffolding and stuff like that being built all the time. But now you're going to see this like really bright screen with, you know, screws being screwed into it and, or, you know, hammers hitting nails and stuff like that at a large scale. It's just a bit tongue in cheek, but, uh, and playful, you know, totally. Um, that leads me kind of into the the next little segment of the the chat is, you know, obviously you're a futurist yourself, uh, our conversations are, always very inspiring talking about the future and technology and what's next and yeah so what where do you see kind of this technology going as you just touched on talking about screens everywhere and this kind of this idea of seeing digital art everywhere it's a vision that i share also how do you kind of see that future playing out especially from a, a digital artist perspective being a digital artist yourself mm, yeah so i've got a few uh, like i'd probably say that like i'm pretty realistic when i'm close to the information but when it's far away when the prediction is you know a decade i get really optimistic about stuff some things have come true that i feel like i've sort of self-predicted myself and said hey i wonder if that's going to happen it has which is nice but usually i'm wrong about it here's my optimistic hope my optimistic hope is that the next gains in com in computation are uh really driven you know it's probably coincides with hardware but they're really software like i'm really looking forward to this what's happening with ai what is happening with in intelligent software and 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 you know gains algorithmically like what how much how much performance gain is there to gain in al algorithms my hope is is that the future there is a lot of that and we get to retroactively increase the performance of old computers I think one of the biggest problems we saw this play out massively with NFTs was like whether access to the technology of NFTs was equitable. I can guarantee it's still not. It definitely wasn't at the start of 2021. There was no doubt about that. I remember being Clubhouse was big at the time, being in a Clubhouse space and talking with a bunch of African artists that were just like, 300 US dollars is beyond comprehension to mint one artwork. Yeah, just the gas fees alone. Yeah, gas fees alone. Let's say the gas fees like three dollars. It's still too high. You know, like yeah. it's not equitable at all. And so my hope is is that is that there is so much to be gained inside software that we can actually utilize old computers in a way that even when it like sort of trickles down and you know everyone gets you know in the third world countries gets the hand me downs from the West, which is what's happened for a very very long time that these become more powerful, more equal in power, you know? It's not going to be tied up to who can have the most GPUs. And you start to see this happening now with GPUs. GPUs are getting very, very, very fast. And while I think that there's going to be this cloud dilemma where there's, you know, 
lots of computation being done away from the local system. I'm hoping that because of that reason, the local systems are going to become much more affordable and the software much more performative because of that. I think the other interesting thing that I'm sort of making a bit of a bold prediction on, but I see it happening right now is I think the web browser might be the last application. It seems that like the way Figma works, I know my favorite application is Figma. As a communication tool and as a design thinking tool, it is just far surpassed anything else that I've ever probably used or learned. And it's very simple. It, you can draw blocks in it and talk about ideas and collect research and stuff like that. But from a software perspective, it seems that having something that is, when you've got an application that is used by the internet and talked about on the internet, is much harder when it doesn't exist on the internet. And so you can see all of these applications like Adobe Creative Cloud and stuff, they've got this, you know, installer application in, in Creative Cloud that can install and update and manage things, but still managing like a bunch of stuff on the desktop. If you could have Photoshop live on a server and you view it through a web browser the same way that Figma works, I think at that point, you've got all of this control about the version, got all of this control and information about the OSs that are using it. Right now, you've got desktop software that's like, out of date, doesn't work on this, that doesn't work on that. And some people like it that way. I think, you know, like there are, it's not all, you know, perfect, but it does seem to me that if web browsers continue to gain more and more access to the hardware resource on the system, that they may end up becoming like the last, you know, application that we really need. You'll open a web browser and visit a website to get Photoshop and potentially pay for it by hour, you know, which... I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm not, not sure. I, not sure I'm looking forward to Adobe controlling all of that stuff. But you know, that sort of like on-demand computing seems more and more likely the way that the future is going to go. And software, I think, has to keep up with it that way too. So yeah, it should be interesting. We can all come back and have podcast round two hundred and to see. See how wrong I am or how right I am. No, I never make specific predictions anymore because. My predictions are always outlandishly wrong, like incredibly wrong. Ever since I predicted that episode one, The Stanton Menace, would be the greatest Star Wars movie ever, it's all just been downhill from that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it can be hard. I think I think future me will come back and look at this with regret, but it's it's fun for now. No, it's fun while I'm in the podcast. <laughs> can I ask uh, a question that kind of builds on that, I guess? What's your take on the Apple Vision Pro and like, I guess what people are talking about as the next AR VR renaissance? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that there's def a lot of interesting design choices by Apple with the Vision Pro. Like for example, the concept that it's got a battery pack, like the idea that they're not trying to load it up and make like we, I mean, even me up until probably last year were thinking there was going to be like a glasses thing that you would use in the street and it would give you a heads up display and stuff like that. It yeah. seems that that's not possible. I think, look, to be 100% clear, the Apple Vision Pro that you see right now, I think a lot of people are consumers of iPhones and consumers of Apple products and, and AirPods and things like that. Look at it like, oh, cool, here's the next Apple product. Really what's happening is it's like this is the iPhone 1 and it's basically a prototype for people who are huge technologists, rich people, and uh, people who do, just don't want to have a car and want to buy an Apple Vision Pro instead, you know, like it's really who it's for. 
and you're getting in at the ground level. It's going to be fun. It's going to be novel. It's going to do some really cool stuff that you can show off to your friends and you get over it really quickly. But I think that this is the way that Apple built on the phone. I think it's the way that, that they've built on other things as well. They you know, have this strategy that's a bit late to market, but usually very well refined. And I think that they're probably going to try and do the same thing here. I think there are some applications for the Apple Vision Pro that are just very clear. Like industry, for example, being able to warn people working on an oil rig that you have to shut off this valve before you do this next movement while you're repairing something so you don't get a burn. I think it's just like a no-brainer. If if it's good, it works. And it's very, the, the dimensions are very, like the fidelity of it is very accurate and it's not, it doesn't feel glitchy. It doesn't feel like the AR that we sometimes see now where stuff's sort of popping around trying to find what the perspective is. If it's that good, it's pretty clear that you can see large companies going out and buying as many as they can. As soon as it becomes tethered to something like safety or profit, profit and safety for an oil company is probably very tethered together. You'd imagine that they're going to just go straight into that. So I think it's yet to be seen. I think it's still very early days, but I have high hopes for it. I think I think further down the line, what that sort of experience can add to how we see the world and this gradual, very gradual crossover of the digital world over uh, overlaying over the real world. I think I think the Apple Vision Pro is sort of like a first step in that right direction, and I have high hopes that it does go down that road. I'm not. I'm not certain. I think it. I think it requires huge computational power. It's. We've got a lot of things. You know, all of that software's got to catch up. Hardware's got to catch up. We need better battery technology, which we already need for cars and stuff. So, yeah, it's a. It's a bit of a longer view, but I have hopes for it that we do get something like something like what we dream of in sci-fi movies. You know. Yeah. Something like Magic Leap said we were going to get it a few years back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, even, yeah. even even the Google Glass, like there's definitely like aspects about that that I think were good. It's yeah. funny how much the product strategy matters. You know, you can definitely see Dude. Apple just watched that unfold, learned a lot from it, learned what people wanted and didn't yeah. want. And, oh, they don't want a camera on it, right? Like, okay, cool. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we don't want a camera in this way or we don't want it to be something that I'm going to wear out in public, you know? Even that, very interesting. So, yeah. yeah. I'm for one excited to see see how Tim Grove handles that new new space. <laughs> in the space Adobe, which is very 2D, going into 3D. But for example, these 3D works are still represented in a 2D display. You know, what is the next dimension here? I'd love to see three-way handshake and be able to experience it in the movement, to be able to see those particles moving around, be able to see it from a different angle, and kind of immerse myself in the artwork. So. I for one am really excited to see that next generation. Wow, this space, yeah, yeah. Let's hope the future team has enough brain power to learn new things at that point in time. I feel the older I get, the more fatigue I feel about learning. So hopefully, when it comes time to learn all these new AR tools, that I'll be able to keep up. But yeah, I'm very keen on that. I mean, other things that are interesting: light field technology, the render engine I use at the company Otoy make a render engine called Octane. They, they've been hedging their bets on light field technology for quite a while and not sh- sure on it, but it's basically like the concept of AR without glasses, like 3D sort of like holograms, you know? So we'll see. I think there's lots of lots of people are taking swings at all of these different things and 
that's good for us, right? As people who are consumers of it and, and eventual users or creators of it, I think it's good. It's good that people are trying things. One thing I'm quite curious about is obviously I understand how you got into your art practice. You've always been around technology. A bit more specifically and specific to this podcast, how did you kind of find the transition into the Web3 world? Or how did that come about going just from making your art and then all of a sudden now minting it on a blockchain? What was the catalyst there for you or the, you know, the moment of understanding, oh, wow, this is actually quite cool technology? Mm, yeah, I think, yeah, it's just funny. Again, I just owe a lot to David. He's a, he's a very close friend of mine, but he would he just seems to be... He's way more optimistic than me. I'm optimistic. He's way more optimistic than me. And that leads him to having discussions that I cancel out by default. So he's like this little Cupid that comes in and whispers in my ear and says, hey, bro, you should look at this thing over here. It's interesting. I'm like, no, it's not. He's like, it really is. You should look at it. And so the end of 2020, he was talking to me about, about NFTs and, and this technology and what was sort of happening with it. And I'd, I'd already I'd been working in software at that time as well and close to technology myself anyway. And he just sort of said like, oh, there's this thing that's happening where people will pay for your digital art with crypto. And the combination of digital art and crypto to me, I was like, it's a scam straight up. Like, that's just a scam. There's no way that that's real. As soon as I see crypto and I'm seeing this person's email that I've never seen before. And so that person who was reaching out at the time was Matt Vernon, who's one of the founders at Foundation. And they were trying to convince me. And then I think around about the same time, probably that same week, actually, people had started talking about it. And that gave a lot of credibility to the, to the discussion. And so after that, I really had to go into a mode of doing my own research and trying to work out how I thought it worked and what were the problems with it, what were the dilemmas. And there was definitely a lot of dilemmas at the time, but younger me, younger me discovered DeviantArt, right? At this one point, I decided to work out that digital art was this thing. And I saw DeviantArt and I was probably about 16 or 17. And I just remember seeing DeviantArt going, oh, people call this digital art, stuff that's made just inside the computer. And you know, you, you make it like this. And I, I just thought that the reality of having galleries filled with digital art was no more than like two or three years away. I just thought that was how it was going to be. Uh, it took a lot longer. It took a lot, lot longer than what I thought then. But this was something that I saw that was just superior to me feeding all of my art and, and stuff that I've been making into private social media. It seemed like a better way to archive my work. It seemed like a better way to communicate my work and, you know, ambitions of the blockchain, potentially blockchain social networks, and this idea of being able to surface artwork and things that live in this decentralized way in multiple places, depending on what the user is looking for. All of that started to become almost like a no-brainer for me. I, I said it before, and, and I'll say it again, I don't actually care if my work sells. I don't actually care if people like it. I just care about like putting it in the best place that it can live. And private networks just don't seem to be that good. That's not to say that, you know, everything is truly decentralized, still have the IPFS problem. I'm still minting stuff on Foundation, still minting stuff on Culture Vault, and we're tethered to some of this. But is are those structures better than Facebook? Like, yeah. <laughs> they definitely feel better than Facebook. They definitely feel better than than Google Images to me. So it's one of those things that just sort of became a no-brainer for me. And the more I understood about it, the more I was like, oh, this is just, this is good. Um, yeah. Nice to hear David's name mentioned a couple of times. I think we'll have to try and get him 
on the podcast eventually soon. You should, you know what you should do? You should get David and Jess together. David and Jess together, they have very similar brains, both extremely creative, both done stuff on Culture Vault as well. And uh, them together talking about art, I think is quite, it's quite a treat. So yeah, I'd suggest maybe you can handle the four-way conversation. I'd definitely say having them together would be really fun for you guys. And I think, yeah, especially for the listeners that don't know, David Port Beckfield and Jessica Tikio, great Sydney-based artists doing a lot of cool things in the space in Web3. Their work is proliferating all around the place. You can find it on Foundation. You can find it on Culture Vault across the, the Web3 art marketplaces. Before we, before we wrap this up, I was going to say, Tim, where should we be sending people to check out your work, check out your provenance and history and what you're working on right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I like most designers and artists, I have a website that has been work in progress for about 15 years. So you can't go to timgrove.com.au yet, but you will be able to. You can hold me to account to that. So look, find me on Instagram, Tim underscore Grove. You can find me on Twitter, Tim Grove underscore, I think. And yeah, Foundation, Culture Vault, the places that I've got stuff up now might have some stuff elsewhere. I think I have something on Tezos somewhere from the Hiketnunk days, but I don't know if it still exists. We'll might maybe lost to the void. But yeah, those are, that's where you can find me. And yeah, feel free to reach out and like have a chat. You know, I'm we we we've gone 30 minutes over on the 30 minute podcast, so I'm not afraid of having a conversation. Feel free to reach out to me on my socials and and have a chat anytime. Fantastic. Thank you for being on this today. I've I've had a great time. I feel like I've I've been scribbling some notes down while you've been talking that just really resonated around, you know, doing your thing, not worrying about trends and cohesion, all this kind of stuff. It's just, it really spoke to me. So I appreciate your time so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, big thanks, guys. And I'll be sharing all the links to Tim's work, Tim's profile in the attachment to the podcast. So you'll be able to find those links. That will be all good. And yeah, thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. And catch you next time with the next artist. Awesome stuff. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Joe.